0: Good afternoon, everybody, and a very, very warm welcome to this afternoon session at Adelaide Writers' Week. It is such a thrill to be here. Uh, My name is Sally Warhaft, and I'm... Uh, visiting Adelaide from Melbourne under much more pleasant circumstances than this time last year when it felt like I was escaping some sort of a hell. Um, we're back in the dappled light and it is just really gorgeous to be here. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here on the lands uh, of the Kaurna people and I'd like to acknowledge the elders uh, past, present and future. It is a thrill uh, to be introducing our guest this afternoon. Saul Griffith is an inventor, entrepreneur, engineer, and author. He's the co-founder and chief scientist at Rewiring Australia and Rewiring America. And his latest book is The Big Switch. Uh, And basically, um, Saul wants to electrify everything our energy systems, our economy, our governments and citizens. Um, But right, for now, he's just going to electrify us. Hello, Saul.
1: That is a great intro, thank you.
0: Welcome. (laughs) Um, I'd like to start by you describing your version of an energy paradise. What does it look like?
1: I mean, It looks a little bit like this, to be honest. (laughs) Um, Well, the energy paradise would allow us to live the lives that we enjoy living, um, but without creating the climate problem that we have. And so that paradise... I'm I'm willing to achieve that by any ends. So in Australia, that means electrifying everything and powering it with renewables, because that's what's possible. Um, You gave me... I'm taking your paradise as a realize, real world one where we don't get to have um, Iron Man's fusion power generator powering us all. So I think paradise looks like Australia except everything's electric and our utes are electric and we cook on induction uh, barbecue plates and have the same sausage sizzles and we ride electric jet skis that don't make the horrible noise anymore. Um, and other, other than that, we you know, have incredible... These LED lights in beautiful outdoor settings and dappled sunshine.
0: Um, do my kids get to, you know, put on wings and fly to school instead of going in the car?
1: So, uh, they, I have a wonderful Kiwi in my office and he's been adamant forever that uh, above about 120 kilometres an hour it costs you less energy to fly than to keep the wheels of the vehicle on the ground. So, he has... That's his argument for why we must build electric flying cars... And um, I don't know that i mind that. So as long as you want to get your kids to school really quickly...
0: Yeah, I really do.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe what you need is the autonomous electric uh, aircraft that picks your children up by the scruff of the neck and drops them at school? Yeah. Yeah.
0: OK, I'm liking this plan so far. I have seven-year-old twins, by the way, so... <laughs> ..that's a... I'll get a little, a little double one. Um, Tell me where we start in achieving this. I mean, it's a transformation. It's a it's an infrastructure project or fantasy. You need to tell me why, if it's not a fantasy. Where do we even start in this country, which is what your book focuses on, in achieving this?
1: Um, I think we have to start here with killing the bad ideas and the, the awful debate and the culture war. So I actually think it's a non-technical answer to where we start in Australia. We are allowing ourselves to be distracted climate-wise by the promise of false gods, carbon sequestration in the future and hydrogen and, and all of these things that probably probably make a little bit of difference but don't really get us where we need to go. So a more honest debate... A more honest debate about the timeline would be fantastic. Australia was one of a few nations, our peers in this case were petro-states, that lobbied the IPCC process to put in so much negative emissions in the future that it's probably physically unrealisable. But we kept doing that for the last 20 years of the IPCC to slow us down. Uh, And, you know, basically to to fudge the accounting, as um, Greta Thunberg would say... Uh, So I think we need to have honesty about what we've done. And because of that, that needs us to have urgency about what we have to do. And for the lay audience, here's the easiest way to describe the problem. Um, Many of you drove here in a fossil fuel powered car today. You probably boiled your tea this morning with a natural gas kettle and you probably had electricity powered for the lights of your alarm clock this morning by... Um, Well, actually, you're in South Australia leading the world. But if you were in Victoria, it would have been supplied by a coal-fired power station. Um, All of those machines that burn fossil fuels, there's a few billion of these in the world. And if every machine that already exists today, so we never make a car that runs on fuel again, never make a coal or a natural gas power station again, the emissions of the machines that already exist living out their natural life will take us to 1.8 degrees Celsius on the the climate. So remember we want to hit 1.5 and then you say well how do we get there? Well that means starting tomorrow no one can ever buy a petrol car again. So your next car has to be an electric one. Your next kitchen stove has to be an electric one because these are the only this is the only technology that we know will do it. So having these electric things powering them with wind and solar and we need to have an honest conversation that that's what Australian climate and energy policy needs to look like if we're serious about trying to get as close as we can to a one and a half degree target to prevent more disasters like what's happening in northern New South Wales right now and our bushfires and the disasters that we've all experienced because we have a fragile climate here. But I think it starts with honesty is the short version of that answer.
0: Well, that's depressing and it, and it's a real shame because I mean, we've what you're talking about, we've been talking about for 20 years. So I could have been on the last legs of my Tirana um, by now before we stopped making them. Once upon a time, Australia could make things, which is probably something we, we can talk about. Um,
1: I mean... The last Holden was a red one. I remember that anecdote from my American book.
0: Is that right? My, mine was matte gold. And I should never <laughs> have gotten rid of it uh, until now. Although uh,
1: maybe you should electrify it now.
0: Well, that 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 would be great, but the problem, of course, is that we've been having this conversation for decades, and the stubbornness, and the refusal of any shift at all um, in what we're doing uh, with our energy uh, generation is—I mean, it's idiotic, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but let's maybe let's try the really generous interpretation of we've been having this conversation for 20 years, and maybe let's say mea culpa. There's no one in this audience, myself included, who's currently living a zero-emission life, and we don't know how to, either individually, in our communities, or at national level. And in the conversation, in imagine we were having this conversation in 2010, and you'd say, well, how do we get there? You We hadn't had the experience of... They're still a little bit expensive, but they're getting close to cheap electric vehicles. We hadn't yet had the experience of the rooftop solar revolution in Australia that's the cheapest electricity that has ever been delivered to customers. So in 2010, it was, in fact, hard to imagine. And so that played to the strengths of the industries that want you to keep doing what they make money having you do. And so maybe this might be the first moment in history when we can have the conversation where the answer doesn't end up being you have to live in a cold small house, walk uphill to school both ways. Um, (laughs) And so... I think in the generous interpretation at about 2017, 2018, the people who really thought about this and studied energy systems could see that the answer was going to be 90% electrification. And I think now in 2022, the imagination gap has been bridged by a lot of people. So I think now is the time to say, oh, okay, maybe we can do this. And then hopefully we, we don't take another dec- decade to get to, well, let's start. And how quickly can we do it? Because we actually have about Three hours to make that decision.
0: Huh. I want to go back to you. Just mentioned the solar revolution here. Um, what were the things that underpinned the the success of that? Because that is a, a a great success story, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you you have no idea how good you have it um, here in South Australia. You can probably buy rooftop solar for your house. The term in the industry is that ninety cents per watt. After financing and all of the things, that means that electricity made on your rooftop costs you six cents or seven cents a kilowatt hour. That's astounding. In the US, which has largely the same amount of sunshine as the US, as Australia, it still costs $3.20 a watt for that solar cell to be installed on a roof. And what, so, what
0: about Collingwood in Melbourne? How much is that?
1: <laughs> probably about eight cents in Collingwood, $1.05. No, okay. dollar, dollar and this is really important because even if you could produce electricity for free out in the on the grid, it costs more than 10 cents to get the electricity from out there on the grid to your tea kettle. Yeah. And so it is, you can now say it doesn't-I don't really care about fusion energy or nuclear energy or any of these fantasies you're selling, you because the cheapest electricity that's ever existed is now on my roof. And how did Australia do that? We actually did a really clever thing, or maybe we did it by accident, but let's allow ourselves to imagine we were clever for a minute. Uh, We ran a certification and training program that built the workforce, but also trained the workforce to to participate in the inspection and the sign-off so that we didn't have extra layers of bureaucracy for the permitting and all the other things. Uh, And then it took the risk away for the contractors so they didn't have to charge extra markup. And it was sort of complicated little things like that. Um, and then, of course, the Australian government helped subsidise the market in the early days when it was expensive, up until the point that now it's basically pays for itself.
0: This was under Howard, wasn't
1: it? Is that it right? was under Howard. Yeah,
0: I think um, that people perhaps forget that um, that that red tape thinning perhaps was his his. I, I
1: keep forgetting whether this is red tape or green tape we're cutting, but yeah, it's yeah. one. It <laughs> might be both of them. <laughs>
0: um, I mean. Uh, uh, South Australia as well, of course, uh, the battery, the the, the enormous battery. Um, Tell me about that in line with your plans for a a battery-generated, electrified nation.
1: So, um, I'm trying to sell the Australian public on a future that's not quite here yet today. And it's not quite true anywhere in the world, but because I, I gave you that introduction of how we, you know, we can't let more fossil fuel machines be born, so we need to get to this moment as soon as possible. You have to model the future. Um, Australia is the proof point when you're saying to the world what is the recipe that you can do rooftop solar very cheaply, and then batteries. Um, Ten years ago, it would have cost you a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour to buy the cells that go into the battery packs. Um, this year, you can buy them for about $100 a kilowatt hour. They still install, some of you probably bought a Tesla battery or the government helped you buy a Tesla battery or a LG battery this year, they still install on the side of your house at $1,000 a kilowatt hour. But if we did something similar to what we did with solar and we eliminate the soft costs, those batteries are going to be incredibly cheap soon. They last about 5,000 cycles up and down, that means... um, you sort of divide the cost by the number of cycles. Batteries should soon cost, soon meaning in the next few years, if we do the right, if we continue to make the industries grow, if we cut the red and the green tape, that'll be five, 10 cents per kilowatt hour cycle. Now, if you add that to the five or six cents solar, you now have this recipe for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, cheapest electricity that ever existed in the world. And it's happening in actually South Australia <laughs> first in the world so you all pat yourselves on your back great job um, but then people say oh but the electric vehicles are too expensive still and that's true but you know conservative organizations like bloomberg new energy say the the electric vehicles will be the same price as the equivalent internal combustion engine car in 2025 and then the induction stoves are getting cheaper the heat pump heaters you know them as your reverse cycle units here they're getting cheaper And you can now model the economics for a household. And this is really quite extraordinary. I did this two years ago for the US. And you could model what they currently pay. Average household in the US pays $4,500 US dollars a year for energy. And you could show that by 2030, with all these cost trends, they'd save about $2,500 a year. And then last year, and maybe the impetus for writing the book was like, oh, let's have a look for Australia. It should be better because we've got good sunshine and because South Australia is leading the world. And then did all the math, and you're like, holy cow, Australia will break even on this box of goodies for the average Australian household. Um, the average Australian household spends about 4800 Australian dollars a year for petrol, natural gas, and electricity. Once the solar, you know, actually with the solar, the cost it is, once the batteries get down to two or $300 a kilowatt are installed, once the vehicles cost about the same amount, we will be saving $5,000 a year as a household.
0: When you say we though, what what proportion of Australians can honestly in a in a kind of you know livable, survivable time frame, make that transition with the, the kind of infrastructure in the household that's required to be turned over?
1: Well remember that like that first point about your water heater's having a natural life. Yeah. So water heaters last 12 years on average. I'm terribly boring at dinner parties because someone says something about a water heater and I say, I know th- I know them. <laughs> um, water heaters last 12 years. Uh, stovetops last 15 to 18 years. Your gas heaters last 20 years. Um, so we're not saying go and rip them all out tomorrow and pay... it would cost you $100,000 tomorrow to go buy all the things. But... If you buy these things over the next decade in your house and replace them, if you put the battery and the solar on your house consequent with this, then you will be saving that money in every household in Australia. By 2025, it'll break even, and by 2030, it'll be that $5,000. So we will all benefit, roughly, all households, provided that we help households change the household business model. Because today, you buy a really cheap machine, and then you feed it... Cash every week at the petrol bowser, or when you pay your utility bills, and it's shifting to a new world where you buy an expensive machine up front, but then you have basically you know, close to free electricity or energy through its lifetime. So, I think you've hit on. It wasn't the question you asked, but I love the, where this goes. The people are very concerned, rightly I think, about climate justice and and economic equity in this energy transition. And it's going to come down to whether your household has a good credit rating or not. Because there's already a whole slew of banks that are just they are starting to make special financial products so that when you go to buy a car, they will magically have financing for this electric vehicle up front that will help you afford it if you have a good credit score. Uh, and then you'll be saving money driving that car on day one. But probably 50% of households in South Australia never buy a new car. So, And the climate can't wait for us 15 years until the second-hand ones hit the market. So what you'd really like is a proactive Australian government that actually is like, whoa, what an incredible investment. If, I, if we invested in our people and our households and we think about those as infrastructure, the same way in the 20th century we thought about dams and roads uh, as infrastructure, a small investment now will actually save the whole country an enormous amount of money later, and uh, thanks. Um, I hope that's a really popular idea, and I hope you won't vote for anyone who doesn't try to make that policy in a couple of months. <laughs> but really, um, this, this is what's at stake. We are, and, and I actually think this is where we win or lose on the climate transition. If only the 10% can avoid it, afford it, and I drove a Tesla from Sydney to Adelaide. I borrowed the Tesla. Um, With my mum, who's in the front row. Hi, mum. Um, But there's still, you can feel the visceral resentment on the road for Teslas when you're driving inside one. It's like the Australian people are like, oh, fuck you, you can afford that thing. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: This one, particularly, because it's red, the last one I borrowed was white, less anger towards the white one than the red one. But I think that will translate into a pushback against the future unless we help every family afford this electric future. So I think this is the political issue for our times, is how do we help everyone afford it?
0: I remember um, Ross Garno telling me once that Australia is just hopeless at picking a winner. And when I read your book... (laughs) It, it reads to me like a winning plan. Um, you know, if only we could just pick pick something uh, that will work and really go for it. And I wonder if you have the same impression about Australia. You've been in the United States for 20 years and recently returned. Um, are we a, a very generalist kind of place that can't pick a winner?
1: I think it's more insidious than that. Um, I think we'd like to argue the details, and I'll happily talk to anyone about hydrogen because a few people here will be like, oh, that electricity shit, that's bullshit. Hydrogen's going to solve everything. Remember that hydrogen, if it's zero carbon, starts with electricity. Let's start the conversation there. Anyway, there's still people who want to have the debates, and they're worth having. But really, this is the, the challenge here is that we can use the somewhat tired neoliberal idea that the free market will determine the winner and that we shouldn't interfere, and I think, you know, Scott Morrison is the love child of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Um, I wasn't going to get political. I don't know whose love child Albo is. <laughs> um, but that's a very convenient place to start, because then you can say, oh, well, if we... You know, technology, not taxes, is free market econo babble. for... Um, I don't want to rock the boat of my fossil fuel friends. And so we've, you you have to win, you have to commit to something. The physics is in, the economics is in, the, you know, there's a pretty solid reason why none of the world's automotive companies are continuing their hydrogen programs, right? We can see what the future is gonna be and yes, we need to commit. If we don't commit, if we waste a decade, we waste a decade on climate. We waste a decade on all of those household savings that we could be enabling. We waste a decade on the community renewal that will come from us rebuilding our communities around electrification. Um, so I, you know, I think it's the unfortunate collision of the, the incumbent player, the fossil fuel industry, benefits from this pseudo-free-market technology, not taxes idea. And like I said to you before, climate doesn't care about your market ideology. I'm not a pink. You know, I'm I'm an entrepreneur who works in Silicon Valley. I try to make money. I'm not anti-capitalism. But starting about 2012, you could say that the free market, no carbon tax you could put on the market in 2012 would hit the climate target we need. So the free market cannot solve climate on the time frame required for one and a half degrees. Okay, well. Then let's put that idea on the side and say, "Well, what do you have to do to design a market to actually succeed and actually have an active hand in the thing And we just didn't ask ourselves that because it was inconvenient because we love selling natural gas and coal mm.
0: um, you you're an optimist and the book is... didn't sound like it the last no. few sentences no <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll 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 pull you back up and then I'll you know, slam you down again uh, i um i I want to get back to this idea of at uh, american uh, you you write in the book that you got to university at MIT and you noticed an enthusiasm an energy um, for innovation and uh, of course i'm not going to romanticize um, america uh, you know it but on that front, there is or it certainly seems to me, an, a much bigger space for supporting the kind of entrepreneurship um, that you, you suggest. How do we get that fired up here? Because nothing that you advocate in your book will happen, I think, without it, um, starting with the incredibly uh, devastated state of our universities...
1: Oh, we're going to go from energy, which I was hoping to talk about, to economics yeah, well, and...
0: But it's in the book, so we're going to. <laughs>
1: um, so I went to MIT and then I was like, it was like, oh, this is what education looks like. It was incredible. Uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's the one in the movies that all the kids with really thick glasses go to, and it's just like that. Um, and you're like, I found my people finally. Yeah. And the, the joke is, how do you tell the extrovert at MIT? and it's like it's the guy who looks at your shoes when they're talking to you (laughs) Um, and then for the girls dating MIT the the uh the odds are good but the goods are odd (laughs) (laughs) um it's a special place in all respects uh (laughs) You know, America, coming back from World War II, uh, Vannevar Bush, who was the science advisor at the end of the war, was trying to figure out how to capture all of the brains from Europe and put them to work, and he wrote a wonderful essay called Science the Endless Frontier and basically designed the National Science Foundation, the Modern Research University, and the whole full stack of science and R&D in the U.S., And that did a great job of fostering this culture of innovation. And in the early days, up until software existed, venture capital followed all of this money, and America did really well. But there was actually a wonderful article in The Atlantic today about how America has stopped, starting in about the 1990s, when they only wanted quick returns on software, from making any money on any hardware. So America invented the solar cell, owned most of the solar industry through 1990, and then lost it all to Japan and now China. Australia invented the other half of solar energy, and we're not profiting it from it. It was invented at the University of New South Wales, my alma mater. So I actually think the answer to that question probably has more to do with macroeconomics and you know h- how we think about the global economy than necessarily Australia can't do it. To be perfectly honest, I've been doing a lot of road tripping around Australia and looking at local communities, and I'm meeting a huge number of young and not-so-young entrepreneurs who are working on pieces of what we need for this future, whether it be solar tracking companies we saw in Albury or electric truck manufacturing we saw in Wodonga. And um, I think there is, on the ground here, more in the shed, ready to make things... um, invention going on in the u.s there's more boffany stuff but they've lost the capacity so we've we haven't figured out how to get the guy inventing in the shed to build an industry for the country Mm -hmm. america has forgotten how to get the guy who went to mit or stanford to build the industry in the country unless it's software um so i'm not sure that we should be too hard on ourselves um and i see it happening i think now we have a generation of internet billionaires and they're starting to invest in young Australians so I think that's a good start, you have to build the ecosystem and the culture um, so I don't know I have hope there, I'm optimistic that Australia is doing better than you think, I think we for 50 you know, since I remember what was it, the ABC show about inventing, Beyond 2000 we were wrestling with whether we could innovate mm. anymore for, for the 48 years of my life but I think we're just, um, we're stuck thinking that we can't because it's become the cultural narrative, not because it's true. Mm. We can do it.
0: Mm. We can do even more than that, can't we? We could be the exemplars uh, to the world of, of how a nation takes advantage of its... Um, of what it's got there right, right in front of us, which, you know, you, you begin and end the book, really, on, on that note.
1: Here's some amazing optimism. Again, thank you, South Australia. So um, when you model the economics of this energy transition, Australia has a couple of unbelievable natural advantages. A, we have incredible wind and solar, and you guys know that here... Um, this may not sound like an advantage, but it is because we 're such a big country with so few people. Our cost of our gas network, cost of our oil network cost of our electricity network is proportionally higher than it is in other countries. Mm. We pay more f- you know we pay fifty percent more for petrol than Americans do we pay fifty percent more for coal generated electricity and natural gas than Americans do because of that, the renewables are cheaper sooner than the competitor here than they are anywhere else. This is another huge advantage and you know, it probably doesn't feel like it, but the politics here is at least sort of civil, and it's not so large and out of control that we couldn't get our act together if we wanted. And I, you know, one of my optimistic experiences the last few weeks is I've developed the strong belief that the Country Women's Association is going to electrify Australia and save the world. Like, we still have community (laughs) organisations. But to, you know, to tie it to something, I just had the experience. i just had lunch with three My mum would say, lovely young men. Um, And they were lovely young men. And they had heard that uh, the thing I want to do is show to the world that this model now works and the economics now works and it's going to work in Australia first. So let's do a community trial. Let's take a 1,000 homes or Mm -hmm. something like that. Let's show that uh, saturation of electric vehicles, all of these other electric appliances, rooftop solar, community solar and community batteries that it works economically. And I thought we were... I was pushing uphill and I'd be fighting everyone. They work for the local energy company here and they're coming to me and saying, we want to run the trial here, we want to start this year, we know that this is the timeline it has to get done. Um, And they're unbelievably motivated. And, you know, I just spent two years fighting Joe Manchin hand-to-hand in the US, trying to write the Build Back Better stuff and get Mm. America to do this. And the best we could do in in that couple of years was to get one mayor from albany new york to commit by do, to doing the same thing by 2030 wow Damn. and that's the, the until this thing that i'm trying to do they're trying to do happens in australia like that's world leading looks like sort of electrifying not really including the cars in albany new york which is not really a good example for the it's like on the canadian border it's freezing and hard there to do this mm. so if australia does this first shows that the recipe roughly works. It's all about electrification. Um, We can be the world leader. Imagine going from our current global climate pariah status to leading the world and actually getting it done on the ground, Mm. showing the economics works, and then exporting the technologies that are the glues that will hold all of this system together to the rest of the world. That is the opportunity for the taking. It's almost a slam dunk. Yes, Australia could snatch defeat from the jaws of victory (laughs) once again. But let's not do that. And I don't think we're going to do it this time because, I don't know, I, th- I, I've, I feel it when I visit with the Country Women's Association.
0: <laughs> if at the domestic household level, every, every household in Australia got the induction stove and the red Tesla and we were living in a household battery heaven, how much...
1: I love would- your idea.
0: Yeah, <laughs> how much, how much would, um, how far along your track to what you envisage would we be at that domestic level and then what would come after that?
1: So I, um, thank you for reminding me this talks about the book, um, not about where I went to school. The, um, <laughs> I, when I arrived in Australia, I was a, basically a Trump COVID refugee with my young family. And I looked around, I was like, oh, the climate debate is so spectacularly broken here because everyone is like, we're waiting to have a climate solution in Australia until all of the problems are solved. And we have an answer for the people who currently make steel and we have an answer for the people who currently make natural Mm -hmm. gas and all these other things. But because we were trying to have this whole economy solution, um, we were missing the early opportunity and it was playing to the cultural tropes of what we're going to lose, it was all about what we have to lose, it wasn't about what we have to win. So I very specifically divided the book into two parts. One is the story about what we have to win this decade, which is running this trial in South Australia and hopefully every other state next year and proving to the world that 45-ish percent of our domestic emissions that come from our homes can be eliminated with this method, 65 percent if we include our small businesses. That buys us enough time to solve the remaining hard problems for what everyone is worried about, which is my industry. Um, what do we do about agriculture? Um, and the reality is we're going to win that game enormously as well, but mm. we, won't, it's not, we don't have a drop-in substitute. My first job was in the steel mill in Newcastle. I'm actually a metallurgist by training. So with some confidence, I can say, we don't have a drop-in substitute for making steel today. That not based on carbon but it's only a few years away Um, and it will still be true when that exists that roughly a third or a half of the cost of steel will be the energy used to make the steel and because australia has the most cheapest renewables in the world which will always be true now we should be able to make the cheapest green steel in the world by a country mile every other Country has a much higher population density, not as good renewables as us, so they're going to struggle to just get their own economy to 100% renewable, let alone being able to produce exports that are zero emissions for everyone else. And then, so actually, the story for Australia can be doubly spectacular. We start saving money in our domestic economies right now, and we win all of the industries of the future next decade based on our really cheap reliable renewables. You have to remember that the this future that we're talking about is going to be made out of things that you might recognize that Australia is good at steel, copper, aluminium, aluminium for those people who want to nitpick. Um, and uranium lithium. too. We talk we, about we, that. we dig 25% of the world's uranium. As you've seen, that is probably going to be part of the solution for Northern Europe and for Southeast Asia with high population densities. Like, of all the critical elements of this transition, we are first, second, third, or fourth producer of note in the world. We're swimming in the things that the world's going to need to get through this transition. So if we manage to snatch that defeat from the jaws of victory as well, although we're on track... Go and vote. Did I talk about voting? Although it's hard, right? Neither of them have actually said a policy that adds up to this yet. There's a hint there if you're running. <laughs> um,
0: I mean, we, we still have uh, both parties pretty stuck to the idea of a, our basic export of, of, of basically what we extract out of the ground. Again, this... Um, idea of not turning uh, not making things how how important is that
1: um we could make a lot more things i'm not i don't even need us to be making cars for this right. vision to work out if all we can do is melt the crushed rocks <laughs> i'm satisfied digging out of the ground we're really good at digging shit out of the ground um and then melt them and make them into metals
0: if it works if we do this um and
1: we be- that's be a pretty big contribution for a country of 28 million we should actually be proud of that i'm not trying to belittle mm. it like it really is a he- good <laughs> and that does me- that is making stuff yeah yeah
0: if we can make this nation um if we can electrify it in every way in every way uh, and become a uh, an exemplar to the world about how a, how a country makes best use of its natural advantages, obviously, this can't transplant to the whole world because the whole world isn't isn't bathing in dappled uh, sunlight most of the year round. Um, how does this apply to the rest of the world, and particularly to the colder parts of the world?
1: So our model works for big swaths of Africa, big swaths of Central America all up through North America up until maybe the states that butt up to Canada. Once you get too far north or you get too many people, so another place this recipe doesn't work is like Singapore. You can't put enough solar cells on Singapore. <laughs> the whole thing, if it was covered in solar cells, doesn't power itself. Like there's a lot of countries, that small, high population, it doesn't work. So those countries will need um, either to import renewables, uh, you know, like the the Sun Cable project here to try and send uh, electricity north, or they're going to have to commit to nuclear power. And if you're not prepared to have that conversation, then the then you say, well, I'm not prepared to do those two things. So what are my options? And then you can say, well, you can actually live in small, cold houses and walk uphill both ways to school in the snow. <laughs> like that is the that mm-hmm. is the question and this is you know why is putin where he is right now why is europe panicking it's because they did should have done this 20 years ago this is why germany just said we oh, are we're not going to turn the nukes off as planned because that would be a terrible idea because 40% of our energy comes from natural gas from putin uh little known fact 3% of american energy use is putin's natural gas making legos and audis and um, IKEA furniture in Western Europe. So if you bought Legos today, if you drive an Audi, look at yourself in the mirror tomorrow. I'm, I'm just suffering a quiet devastation. <laughs> well, let's exempt the Lego. I don't drive, but let's I exempt don't the drive Lego. an Audi Yeah. <laughs> or a Mercedes or a Porsche.
0: Uh, no, Or a VW. Yeah. Uh, it's barely a car, what I drive, which has its, <laughs> it's own a- problems. <laughs> uh, so much of of what it, you say, it, it's it's all. We don't have to change our way of life the way you write about all of this. Um, and in fact, you say that a lot of the things that we do at the moment um, to try and contribute to uh, to better use of energy and better awareness of energy are pretty much a waste of time. So, um, uh, I I. I want to know, is it really possible uh, for us to, you know, you're not anti population, the number of popu- our population numbers are not a problem to you, nuclear is not a problem. There actually isn't a problem as long as we can get these batteries up and go electric.
1: Um, I wrote another book last year called Electrify for the US and um, the last chapter was like, "Hey, g- hey, kids! I just told you how we solve climate change, but we could still, you know, screw all the fish, kill the oceans, choke ourselves in microplastics, et cetera. Et cetera. So, actually, there's the good news of that is we can address climate change, and we largely have the technologies to do it right now, but. It would be naive, and I don't, wish to, I don't wish to stand up here and say we can have it all, because hopefully we also remember that it's nice to have national parks and flora and fauna. I mean, you don't have a we are having a biodiversity loss that's as wicked and difficult as our climate crisis, if not more so. And if you drive from Sydney to Adelaide, you can see a lot of the reasons for the biodiversity loss, and that was happening before we climate change was an issue. It's you know industrial farming as practiced is not good. So I don't... I I think we also have to solve some other problems to get to this nirvana that you want. Mm I am also have been in this fight for 25 years, and the first time I was arrested was at COP3 for encouraging 5,000 of my close friends to blockade the Harbour Bridge at peak hour on a Friday night. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Makes you super popular. (laughs) Um, Borrowed my sister's cell phone, which is how the police got me. She didn't like that. Um... But that's when the only solution to the climate crisis in 1998, when that happened, was we all got to ride bicycles, people. The, the, what has happened is the solar, the batteries, um, they are there. And here's the incredible thing about electrification. These machines are t- two or three or four times better than the machines they're replacing in an energy physics sense. When you drive an electric vehicle per kilometre travelled, it's one quarter or one third of the energy of the equivalent size weight petrol vehicle. When you use that heat pump to heat your hot water instead of natural gas or resistance burner, it's three or four times less energy. Same with the, sp- the space heater, the reverse cycle heater is three or four times less energy than using natural gas to do the same thing, and the induction stove is about two or three times less energy than the natural gas to do the same thing. So, you know, it sounds cheeky, but it is actually a true statement. We could have the current version of the Australian dream for everyone. Let's caveat, not everyone's experiencing the dream um, at less than half of the energy that we currently use to do it. And that's, that actually is part of the recipe for making this possible and work out for the electricity side of the conversation. <laughs>
0: Um, We will soon, in a few minutes, be going to questions. So, if you would like to ask Saul a question yourself, um, start clocking that over and you can head to the microphone between these two gorgeous trees just in front of me and um, we'll get to it. And while while people are doing that... Saul, there's an interesting line in the book where um, you advise people to engage with local government instead of chaining themselves to fences... Um, And I was curious as to why local?
1: Uh, I think for a couple of reasons, and I'm going to experiment with some ideas that I'm having in real time with you. Great. Firstly, you know, there's roughly three layers of governance, no matter where in the world you live now. So there's federal, there's something that looks like state, and then there's something that looks like local government. Federal governments have very little to... That they levers to pull on actually the things that are using all of energy and creating all of these emissions. They can provide subsidies. They can provide rules. Those are important, but they they don't actually control. For example, the building codes that determine how much insulation you need, whether or not the solar should be on the roof or not, or how much it's going to cost to install the battery. Because whether you rely, a, you know, whether you have to put multi-ton bollards in front of your battery so that your golden Tirana doesn't hit it. Um, And a huge number of the rules that are actually that what they call the soft costs actually occur at local government level and state government level. Um, And so I think we've got to engage there as part of the issue. But I'm increasingly thinking that this is, um, we've got to engage with the local government for the following reasons. And I'm going to, I just moved back to Australia, I intend to live here for at least quite a while right now. It's much nicer than America. Um, I just moved to a suburb called austin uh, It's just south of Sydney. Um, it's small, there's 1,016 households. Uh, 94% of them are occupied, so there's 955 occupied houses. There's something like 873 school-aged children. There's 2,500 people. Um, there's 1.9 vehicles for every household. Currently, every year, austin Mer spends $3.6 million a year on petrol creates one job at the gas station and that $3.6 million immediately leaves the community. They spend $1.2 million a year on electricity, which immediately goes to the coal-fired utilities and it leaves the community, it doesn't create any jobs in the local community. And they spend $700,000 a year on natural gas, which immediately goes to Victoria. Um, if you electrified that local community, that com- and, you know, we could... Nearly do it all within the local community. I'm not saying you should island it. We have network benefits from connecting to everyone else that make us more resilient. But we should be able to provide all of those energy services and all of those things to that community for about seven or eight hundred thousand dollars a year instead of that five ish million. And then think of the economic benefits at community local level, city level, when that community has three or four million dollars more a year to spend locally. Like you can't buy football fields and classrooms fast enough at the rate of four million dollars a year in a in a community that small, so this was really beautifully well expressed. I I started an organization called Rewiring America in the U.S. and we had a launch in Washington D.C., which was um, the Senate Caucus for Electrification. So we've got nearly all Democrats, a couple of Republicans coming on, and they're join every they meet every week to talk about how do we electrify America, to do this sort of thing in America. And one of the senators said the most amazing thing. This is the biggest wealth transfer in human history is about to happen from um, traditional suppliers of energy to traditional users of energy. And I thought that just expressed it fantastically. And if we do it right, we can make that happen in our communities as an unbelievable organizing and galvanizing principle for renewing Australian communities. And I think that, you know, as I drive across this country and I go to Yak and I or I spend a couple of inspiring days with Helen Haynes and she's working with women, mostly community leaders, who are just, like, kind of tired of the men not getting it done. They don't have their ego involved in the V8. They kind of get the sense that this might come with some new appliances. And they're like... (laughs) (laughs) That was my mother's idea, and I was like, "Should I say this? Because they're gonna—they're gonna think I'm terrible." Um, my mother is wonderful. She's a first-wave feminist and an un, a lovely artist. Sorry, mum, to throwing you under the bus. Um, but anyway, like, I think there's like, we can do this, and I'm really excited at the level of engagement in those communities who want to get it done. And if we're going to get this done on time, at scale, globally. I think if we're waiting for federal governments to do it, it's just not going to happen. Mm. If we sh- have these shiny carrots and we're like, look, we can," this can be the focusing point for renewing our communities, improving our household economics, improving our schools, all of the things, that might be something we could build a unbelievable global populist movement around.
0: Well, your little ethnography of your new hometown tickles my optimism, I must say. It's fast work. Let's go to a few questions if we can run through a few. Hello. Hi. Um, As an individual, um, assuming you can afford it, should you be electrifying basically everything as quickly as possible and not worrying about that you might not have finished the life of your car or your um, stovetop? And it's kind of unrelated, but how do we um, invite you to speak to our grassroots group, which is called Professionals Advocating for Climate Action?
1: (laughs) S <laughs> A U L at rewiringaustralia.org may or may not be how you ask me to do that. Um, the first question is really good. So, mm. the exact is it a better idea to not to squeeze the last few years out of my water heater, etc.? It's such a case by case status uh, or analysis that it's really not worth doing. I would say the following if you can afford to buy an Audi or a BMW, you're a planet fucking hypocrite for not just buying a Hyundai Kona electric and all of the electric appliances and running your solar and you that if you can afford to own a luxury European vehicle you can afford to have a zero emission household and so I, you know now when you go out today you're like mm, I want that scorn and stop scorning the people in the red Tesla <laughs> um, so I think that's how you think about it for you know, there'll there'll be a lot of people in this audience who probably could afford to do it today. It will still be a bit of a pain in the ass today because there's too many phone calls to contractors who want to argue with you. Nah, mate, you don't really want that. You want the natural gas. (laughs) Which is still an experience here. Um, I think for most households, however, it's much more sensible to think probably the water heat is going to go out in a few years. I should save a few extra pennies now. I should be aware of the um, incentives that the government is doing and then do it at the replacement time. That's a totally sensible strategy. It's it's commitment with hitting our climate targets, and I think it's a less stressful way to think about it um, than, oh, I have to go today. You shouldn't feel guilty about going today. And to tie it to the question I think you asked before, like, I think everyone needs to recognise the... Earth Day was 1970. The environmentalist, modern environmentalist movement is really r- remarkably new th- thing. And it had this great day out and everyone marched in Washington and it was wonderful. And then they didn't really know what to do. And then the oil crisis happened in 1973. And that was a supply-side crisis at like, kind of like Europe right now. The energy was cut off. And they're like, oh, what do we do? And at that point, the only way to solve it was smaller cars, colder homes, drive less, walk uphill both ways. Um,
0: and, and you were born around that moment. I was
1: born just slightly after that, 1974, mm. February 13. It was a great day. <laughs> um, the reduce, reuse, recycle was basically baked into the environmentalist movement from this first moment and their first issue topic, which was that energy crisis. And that gave us, like, if we just buy enough stainless steel mugs, we're going to solve mm. this climate thing, right? Um, but the reality is they're tiny fractions of our carbon footprint, our energy use. It's like, I like to think about these things as the infrastructure of your life. And let's be perfectly honest, you might think you're all different, but approximately you're all the same. You've got 1.7 vehicles in your driveway. Um, we've got to do the same set of things. Think about your car, think about your sto- what you cook with, think about what you heat water with, think about what you heat your house with. Um, and think about whether or not you have solar on your roof. And like, make those five decisions well in the next 15 years. And then you can stop worrying so much about whether the dolphin was killed on, I know you have to worry about whether the dolphins were killed on the tuna. All right, I'm
0: gonna go to the next question. You are so effusive. It's one, you're a dream, Sol, you're a dream. Next question, please. I'd like to preface my question by saying that I have solar PV and solar hot water, haven't had an electricity bill in 17 years. The, um, my solar panels are coming to the end of their useful life at 17 years. I'm told I can expect maximum output for 20-odd years. What's going to happen to those solar panels mm-hmm. when I take them away? Are they going to be responsibly recycled? Uh, how much embodied energy went in to make
1: them? And your electric vehicle, what's going to happen to the batteries of those? So I... Love this question. I think this is something, you know, to the point that we could solve climate change and 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 screw the fish. This is the this is the question du jour. Um the answer today is sadly, if you go to recycle those solar cells, you'll struggle a little bit. Um uh, I have a friend in the US who started a he he was one of the he was employee number 5 at tesla he's now guy called jb strawell he started something called redwood energy which is focused entirely on recycling the batteries that are going into the cars we you should be hopeful that because it's glasses and metals in the things that we need, the batteries, the solar cells, the wind turbines, they are the things that we recycle the most. And the materials we recycle most in the world today are about 80% of steel, about 60% of aluminum. I may have those numbers backwards. But they are very high rates compared to the two, three, four percent of actual real recycling for plastics. So you should have a hope that we recycle a whole bunch. But I think maybe what people would like to know related to this question is, or you should want to know, is like, how does this compare to what do we do today? So I will say each and every one of you, but you're not really typical Australians because you're South South Australians and it's better here and you use more solar.
0: And you read books.
1: And you read books. (laughs) And there must be some members of the Country Women's Association out there. (laughs) Um, And tourists. But uh, the average Australian today, 6,000 kilograms of fossil fuels are torn from the ground every year to supply each and every average Australian their lifestyle. When burned, they become 20,000 kilograms or 20 tonnes of carbon emissions. If you just did a naive calculation on a serviette and you said, "Okay, I want my whole life to be electrified, I want the electric cars, I want the solar, all the things, and I'm going to supply it with 50% solar energy, 50% wind energy, and I'm going to have to store half of that energy in batteries because the sun, Um, then what do you need? And you'd need about because the batteries only last about 10 years, because solar lasts about 20 years, because wind turbines last design last about 25 years, steady state to be able to provide that lifestyle all the time. You'll need about 25 kilograms a year of solar, 25 kilograms a year of wind, 25 kilograms a year of batteries at today's technology to supply your lifestyle. We might be able to recycle as much as 80% of those, and it, so it might only be 5 or 10 kilograms per year of each of those things. So think about the... Uh, you know, It may not be perfect, but the unbelievably different burden on the planet pulling 6,000 kilograms of stuff out of the ground that we then just discard into the atmosphere versus maybe 50 kilograms that we recycle 80% of um, so we end up only pulling about 10 or 15 kilograms mm. from the ground every year. So I actually think there's a lot of reason for a lot of optimism on this point, but I absolutely believe... Eagle eyes should be on this issue because people will get lazy about recycling, um, and we we need to make sure we do this well, lest we create other problems.
0: Mm. Um, with advance apologies to the rest of you, we're only going to have time for one more question. And Sorry, I, I do. I, we've given it the full fifteen minutes. We've got um, uh, they're great questions, and they they're requiring the the great answers. But if you Go to the bookshop after this session. Uh, I'm sure you'd be happy to answer questions in the autograph queue there as well. But one more quickly. Thank you.
1: Uh, Like the previous gentleman, I'm lucky to uh, own my own house and I have solar power and and a battery. (coughs) Excuse me, and a battery. Um, What I'm interested in knowing is how you could suggest uh, um, people who rent houses could uh, get their... ..or incentivise their landlords to... um, to provide, provide that, that facility for them because there's no, no incentive for them to do so. The only but- surprising thing about that question is you weren't a millennial and you didn't say, and the, and the boomers are stealing my mon- this money from me <laughs> and I'm never going to own a car anyway and then sort of storm off in anger. Um, which I think is... The, it's the, that, those are the first, second and third questions I get generally when I give this talk. It's like, oh, the story you just told is a great story that kind of encapsulates the 70% of people who are owners of single homes. Anyway, this long answer is to say I don't yet have a convenient answer to that question. I think this is something we're going to have to be vigilant about. This is going to be in the details of how we write regulations and legislation. Um, There are third, you know, another way of giving you the answer is there's a lot of people who understand that there's $5,000 per household that's going to be liberated in the next decade. Some of those people are banks; they would like some. Some of those people are governments; they want some. Some of those people are energy companies; they want some. Some of these are third-party energy ecosystem peoples like the the Teslas and the Sunruns. Um, I think we win. You know, we succeed more or less on this great project if we make sure that more of that five thousand dollars goes to the renters and the homeowners and the families than to the other players and that's going to be determined by how we design the rules of engagement here how we design the financing systems um i think this is actually the climate justice environmental justice question of the decade this is what all of the eyes of all of the climate justice people should be on and this is what just transition means is we are doing this justly if we make sure that the household wins, not the banks.
0: So, it's been a, a pleasure to meet you. It's gone uh, so fast the time. Again, apologies if you didn't get to ask, um, ask your question. But I could almost guarantee that the answer will be uh, in The Big Switch because it is a very detailed book um, which reflects the sort of detail of the answers you've been Giving today, gosh, I, I, I want to see your version uh, up there, Saul. I want this uh, this country electrified and
1: remember, you're voting in a few months.
0: I have never forget. <laughs> <laughs> I never forget, Saul Griffith, everybody, and thank you all for your great questions.